Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to welcome Chuck DeGroat on the show. He wrote this incredible book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. And I tried doing the audible version first and was trying to walk down to the store or walk around the house and do something. And I kept having to stop and pause and write a note or jot something down. Just a really incredible book. And for anyone who's listening to my show, you, you need to pick up a copy. It's like an x-ray of the independent Baptist movement and many of the environments we've talked about on the show. But Chuck, thank you so much for joining me and for, for chatting through this. Yeah, it's good to be with you. So you, you have a quote in your book from a pastor that you were working with, and he, he made a pretty interesting statement. He said, why do you give a damn about me when there's people praying and assaulting on boys in the church? And that question made me pause a little bit. And, and it's a good question is like, why focus on narcissistic pastors? Like why focus on ego? Why focus on kind of the power side of it when there's sexual abuse, sexual assault? Like, why do you think the conversation about narcissism is, is, is so important? Yeah, that's a good question. And I haven't really heard it framed like that, but that's, I, I think that's really significant. My own, my own interest in this really goes back over 20 years now. And it began in a church where I was serving. I was doing some counseling. I was a pastor for a long time and a therapist. And I was seeing couples from the church, a number of the leaders from the church, and was identifying what we might call emotional abuse or psychological abuse, a kind of abuse where there aren't bruises, right? There, there isn't a bruise in the eye. There isn't a, a kind of sexual penetration or something like that. It's psychological and there are invisible wounds. And, and I was watching this play out, recognizing that the, the damage and the trauma of this kind of abuse just as significant as the damage and trauma I was seeing in women I was counseling who were sexually abused 
I can tell more stories about that. But it was that recognition, I think, for me, that this was like a silent killer within the church. Couple that with doing some work in the church planning world, doing assessments and uh, working with a number of church planters who who were, were charismatic. There was often fruit to their ministries, but we would discover over time like a trail of, of dead bodies and associate pastors who had come and gone with the same kinds of experiences of being bullied and berated. I, yeah, so it was stories like that that led me to want to name this particular kind of abuse within the church, which I think doesn't show up as dramatically maybe as, as some of the stories that we've seen from, let's say, the Catholic church and the kind of child sexual abuse that we've seen there. It's almost, it almost seems like the narcissism is almost like, like a gas leak versus the explosion that you tend to identify. I, I look at the Ravi Zacharias story that's breaking right now, and I'm sure no doubt you've been following that yeah. like most of us. And while yes, we're focused on the explosion, there's also, there was years of this leak. Like there was yeah. like these clear, like something smelled off, something sounded off. There was, there were all these warning signs that just got ignored. And it's again, interesting looking at it after reading a book like yours and, and diving into it or, or Scott McKnight's book, A Church Called Tove, right. reading through some of these, it's it's so clearly a blueprint for disaster. Like we see this happen over and over again, but yet it happens to repeat over and over again. Why do you think this keeps happening within church context? Is the evangelical world kind of a breeding ground for this? Or is it something that narcissists see a huge open opportunity to thrive here? Yeah, I do. I think you're onto something. I think the evangelical world can be a breeding ground, as you say. At the same time, we've seen this within the Roman Catholic Church. I do think it's a uniquely, not exclusively, but a uniquely North American phenomenon as I've done my work. And I do think, and this is too much to get into in a podcast like this, but I do think the American story, if you look at some of the roots of the American story and that sense of manifest destiny, that sense of entitlement, that sense of claiming a, a land as our own, that we're the chosen and we're destined and, and it's ours to take. There, there's a sense of that in the, the church planning world, for instance, that I've been in over the last 15 years. Now, there are great, really great church planners, and this is not an indictment on all church planners, but there is this kind of uniquely American ethic that I think is closely tied to the phenomenon of narcissism. And I think narcissism thrives in American society. There are all kinds of studies on this, of course. And then in the last 20 or 30 years, 40, 50 years, maybe even the rise of the, the missional movement, church planning, things like that. We've just seen it in spades. Social media comes on the scene and, and now people have bigger platforms and more influence. And I, it's really hard to tie it to one particular movement or denomination or reason or cause or something like that. But I, in my own work, yeah, this North American context is pretty significant. Yeah. Kristen Dumay's book, Jesus yeah. and John Wayne really dives into that. If someone yeah, wants to, right. if, if you heard that section, you're thinking, let's get into that. Yeah. My interview with her, or if you want to dive into her book, it's a fantastic examination of it. It's difficult because there's a lot of, with all of the good that came out of so many of these movements, there is a lot of underlying bad and, and it, right. a lot of it gets into the idea of narcissism. Who are the leaders behind it? What was the goal and intent of some of these movements that we, we have this fondness or affinity toward? I, I think before we go any further, it would probably be wise to identify what a narcissist is because everyone, like myself, picking up the book, I probably had 40 people I'm thinking of that are like, oh, I know this is about them. This is the, the book on how to identify them. But what you've showed pretty clearly is that 
we use the term very loosely. Like the internet yeah. gave us a lot of labels to give to people and to identify people as narcissists who maybe aren't. But can you just identify what is a narcissist? So that way my listeners have a kind of foundation for the rest of the yeah. conversation. Yeah, I think you're right. I think folks are caricatured with this broad brushstroke understanding of narcissism, which generally, I think for most people, looks like a pretty arrogant and egocentric persona. The, the psychologists use the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Disorders. And within that, you see characteristics like grandiosity, attention-seeking, entitlement, low empathy. So as a baseline, when I talk about narcissism, we see grandiosity. We see that, that larger than life kind of figure. We see this sense of entitlement, like I'm owed the stage. I'm owed your allegiance, attention seeking, like constantly craving. They love Sunday mornings. They love the big events. They love the applause. And then the one that people forget about is low empathy, that there's a kind of feigned empathy sometimes, what I call a faux vulnerability or faux vulnerability but that they don't really have the capacity to see you, to experience what you're experiencing, to really hear you and get into your struggle because they're so self-focused. That's, we, we can dive into it a little bit more deeply because I know you've read it and you know about the spectrum and stuff like that, but that's a baseline definition that then I really nuance from there on out. Right. Yeah. You mentioned the book, like there is that spectrum, right? Because I was right. started reading it and I was like, man, is this about me? Because mm-hmm. I went into it thinking of yeah. other people. And, and then I was like, wait, am, am I a narcissist? Am I, am right. I, am right. I, am I this? Right. And I was like, I don't know if I want to finish this. Am yeah. I going to find out something about myself? And, yeah. and I think there were definitely things that was helpful identifying like, okay, keep an eye on this or, Hey, yeah. maybe this is something on the spectrum. But what you yeah. said was interesting is like anybody a majority at least of, of pastors are probably somewhere on the spectrum, yeah. which yeah. was scary at first until you explained why that is. But Yeah. And the spectrum you're talking about is, is a spectrum that indicates where you are on the scale of narcissistic personality disorder. And that's really what we're talking about here. A lot of people use the, the word narcissism broadly, but but in my work, we are really careful about diagnosing people with a narcissistic personality disorder. And there's some testing that I do around this. On the spectrum, there's a movement from anywhere from style to type to disorder. And I sometimes say that it's like the difference between having the sniffles versus having a bad cold versus having the flu on that spectrum. Now, the unique thing about it is that when I do my assessment work, and I've been doing assessment work for a long time, probably 15 years, with hundreds and hundreds of pastors. Oftentimes, pastors test somewhere in what we call cluster B personality disorders, which include the narcissism and narcissism lookalike personality disorders, but not all of them test to narcissistic personality disorder. A number of them might be on the spectrum because they're generally pretty confident they can get up on a stage and communicate. It's like my colleague says, how many people are, well, this is what he says it. He says 90% of the people of the general public it has some sort of phobia of public speaking. And yet pastors not only public speak, but they get up on stage and say, this is the word of the Lord. And that takes some guts. That takes some confidence. It might just mean if you're lower on the spectrum that you've got some confidence. And that might be because you grew up in a secure home. I talk about healthy narcissism versus unhealthy narcissism. And my daughter, I tell the story of my daughter who, when she was young, did a cartwheel. And she said, daddy, look at me. 
there's a healthy sense at times of, hey, I want you to see what I've done. I showed my book to my closest friends and it's good to be proud of something. But if, if you're doing this at 45 years old, like, daddy, look what I've done, like craving the spotlight, that might be a problem. You might be a little bit further down the spectrum. Right. Yeah. No, it definitely is a difference. There's that confidence, right? Com- narcissism often disguises itself as confidence. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things that was interesting, like reading as I was like, man, having a podcast, does that make me a narcissist? You know, like I'm yeah. early on in the book, but also there's some of that where It's taken me years to build up enough confidence to be able to sit across from somebody on a podcast or to broadcast. And, but it, but then there's other people who it's very natural for. And I think it's important to recognize like Mm. everybody's personality and upbringing and experience was different. I do know, like you mentioned upbringing quite a bit in the book, you talk a lot about childhood experiences. You talk about the lack of self-worth often involved. Is trauma always the root of a narcissistic personality? As an adult, is childhood issues always the cause or are some people born just genetically predisposed to this? Like what's the origin a lot of the times here? I do think there's a bit of a mystery. There's some predisposition, a personality disposition. My, My daughters were born 16 months apart and they couldn't have come out more differently. And then there's a massive impact of family of origin, early childhood. You know, and the work that I've done with particularly with men with narcissistic personality disorder, pretty high on the spectrum, there is inevitably a story of woundedness, brokenness, trauma, bullying. There's some sort of story where at a very early age, they made an unconscious decision, not a conscious decision, but an unconscious decision to put up walls, to build defenses. And if those defenses were breached in any way to throw bombs over And that's really how a narcissist will show up now 15 or 20 years later. I don't ever want to feel vulnerable and powerless like I did when I was six years old and the babysitter sexually abused me or the guys bullied me in the locker room week after week over and over again. I remember talking to a guy who was the small guy in the football team, got beat up. And he said to me, like through clenched teeth, I will never be that small guy again. I will always be on top. And so that, this is where people sometimes notice that I've got some empathy for narcissistic leaders. Now, I take abuse with a deadly seriousness. I've been involved in this in ways that where pastors are removed from ministries and stuff like that. But I also see that beneath the, the rage and the bullying that you see with narcissists, the abuse are broken little boys who, who are desperate for care. They're just going about getting it in really twisted ways. And I know probably in your world, your denomination, you've seen this in spades. Yeah. We used to always joke. I still do. I I was, I sat down with somebody for about probably three hours and we were just talking through our varied experiences. I was on the West coast. He was up on the East coast and we were just talking through all of these different experiences and how similar they were. And, but one of the things we said was like, we were mentioning how it was funny that a, a pastor who was so like, small, like just as a person, like just, you could tell that when they got behind that pulpit, it was the only power that they had ever had. And they got behind this massive, they they would literally preach about having these massive wooden pulpits, like how important it was to have these big pulpits. And it was like, it was almost like their big shield and their platform to spew everything down from, but nothing could come up their way. And uh, it's an interesting dynamic. And it, it is, 
that empathy is important. And I think it's something, it's especially hard to talk about. Obviously there's responsibility, right? So if somebody is sexually abusing somebody, there's no prior trauma that excuses that. But when you take a few steps back to maybe lighter forms of narcissism or someone who it's hard for them to let down their barriers and it's hard for them to communicate with people. There is some level of empathy there. I guess I'd be interested in you to dive into that a little bit more is at what point do we say, Hey, let's try to help this person, you know, move past this. If a pastor is identified as a narcissist, do we just, you know, eat them out of the church (laughs) or do we, or is it something where we try to work with them? Like, where do you draw that line between safeguarding the church and helping the pastor? Yeah. My first instinct and inclination is to protect the abused, those who've been hurt by a narcissistic pastor. But sometimes the way to protect them is through the work with the narcissistic pastor. Hmm. Like I, I was involved in a situation not too long ago where my work with the pastor at least allowed him, uh, allowed us to do enough, enough negotiating, you might say, for him to step away and step down because it could have gotten ugly. And I think if I would have uh, approached him in a way that prompted more defenses, I think it could have gotten really ugly, but he stepped away and then we could in earnest begin the work of healing in the congregation among those who were, I would say, spiritually abused, emotionally abused, gaslit over the course of years. This was not a pastor who in any way had sexually abused or harmed his congregation. And he wasn't even, I don't think, elevated to full narcissistic personality disorder. It was just an orbit of of damaging relationships and a man who was not self-aware at all of his impact on others. But my instinct is to protect the sheep. I think that part of my work over the years has been working individually with men who are on the narcissistic spectrum and counseling outside of now, once they've left their congregations or when they're really ready to get help. And one thing I'll say about that is what we find most of the time is with narcissistic personality disorder, it's really hard to see significant change. We don't see the kind of significant transformation that you'd hope to see in someone's life, the kind of redemption story. It's often very incremental. And if there is change, like there's a guy I I began working with about 12 years ago, who now 12 years later, through a lot of work and a lot of humility, is actually maybe ready to t- dip his toe into ministry again. And even he is saying, what would it look like for me to just begin by volunteering? But it was like to clean the bathrooms or something like that, which I love. Yeah. I really appreciate yeah. that. But that represents a kind of humility that's come with the slow journey. I, I'm curious too, because there's, I question a lot. I look at a lot of pastors and there's some pastors and leaders where it seems clear, at least in retrospect, it's usually easier to tell after the whole course of their ministry is over. And there has been that explosion to say, it looks like they got into this for the power, or it looks like they mm-hmm. got into this for the Ravi Zacharias story. It appears that it was always about that, the titles, the prestige, the the access to things. But I, I have to wonder too, it seems like there's some who truly do believe what they're saying and who who are maybe well-intentioned, but are going about it because they don't, they haven't identified this issue within themselves. So would you yeah. say that a lot of pastors who are fall into this narcissistic personality disorder, do you think they, do you think they identify that there's an issue or do you think they truly believe they're doing God's work? I think most of the time they truly believe they're doing God's work. Yeah. Seldom Will I, will I talk to a pastor who says, yeah, t- to be honest with you, I've really got, uh, I've really had some concerns about myself, potential blind spots. It's, they're pretty convinced. Hmm. 
it's when I do see curiosity and humility that that I suspect that they're not on the narcissist, not elevated to narcissistic personality disorder, like you saying. If if I have a podcast, does that mean I I might be on the narcissistic spectrum or I might be disordered? I'd say no, no, because you have the curiosity and humility to ask the questions. You're probably not elevated to a disorder. You don't see that curiosity and humility in people with narcissistic hmm. personality disorder. They are convinced, and they have, like a lawyer, they have a defense. I mean, look at the fruit of my ministry. Look what I've done. Yeah. Uh, look at the people who've come to faith. And that's, that's troubling. Ravi can say, look at all the people worldwide who I've influenced, uh, or his people can say, because he's passed now, but his people could say, Ravi couldn't have done this. He's had s- such a big impact. That's what's crazy making for the people who've been abused or worked alongside these folks and have seen it, right? Because mm-hmm. they're like, we've actually worked with him and we know the damage he can do despite the fruit. Yeah. But even for those being abused, you're sitting there going, am I wrong to speak out because he's doing such good work? Like you have to, I mean, that silences many victims is I don't want to attack the the man of God. I don't want to attack the person who is helping mm-hmm. so many people. I don't want to be the person to bring down this ministry. And yeah. it's, it puts you in a very difficult position. But I, I liked what you said, because you said in your book that a system inclined to health demonstrates relentless curiosity, particularly getting other solicit- soliciting other perspectives. And mm-hmm. I think that's the issue I can draw, whether it's independent Baptist, Southern Baptist, this abuse yeah. is abuse across the board. Right. The number one thing I see is that lack of accountability. And there's nobody, maybe it was Scott McKnight, but it was one of my recent interviews. They talked about, there's Tiffany Bloom. She talks about the horizontal and vertical accountability, like having somebody above them, people to the side, keeping them accountable. So what are some, what are maybe some safeguards and things that, that churches can put one to identify this before that person's in power, but also to evaluate and audit their ministry as it exists today? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I think when I think about safeguards, I think most people talk about the accountability of the pastor the character of the pastor. I think that's a really important conversation. One of the safeguards is how can we do better assessing of pastors? How can we interview better? I think it's a second piece. We could talk about that more. And that's by and large what I talk about in the book. I think a second piece that you just hinted at a moment ago is the system. Hmm. How does the system set you up for the, in your world, the man of God, right? The dominant lead speaker, preacher comes in with authority and I think too many, uh, too often, uh, these systems, these denominations um, are setups for these kinds of pastors. This is exactly what we want. This has been the major sort of blind spot that I've seen in the church planting world, where I come in as the psychological assessor and a team of six people are doing the assessment and five people say, this, this is the man of God. This guy, He has great charisma. He's inspiring. He's funny. He's a great communicator thoughtful, he's a visionary. And I'm the one who's waving the red flag saying, but he's really unhealthy. And we've got to do, we've got to do a lot of work interrogating the systems that set us up for these kinds of pastors. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I I, I think it, I think just that's what we're seeing over and over again with all these scandals with even Carl Lentz, James McDonald, like there are so many And it's almost, again, it's that gas leak gets ignored until that explosion happens. There's decades of ministry. Even when I left the independent Baptist world, I fell right into the the arms of Mark Driscoll in his ministry. And 
coming from the independent Baptist world, I remember telling somebody, it's so different hearing a pastor so filled with grace and someone who's so kind. And then hearing, like I would read stuff on the internet about how abusive Mark Driscoll was from, even in his verbiage from the pulpit. I was like, this is nothing. Like I grew up hearing some crazy stuff. And so for me, it was a breath of fresh air, but now like it's literally been in the last probably three years or so that I've really been like, oh, there were some big red flags with Driscoll that I totally Mm -hmm. missed, but it's because it was that comparison to the system I had been in. It wasn't comparing it to what's healthy. It was comparing it to something that wasn't healthy. Yeah. And it was a setup for you. You walked right into it in a sense. Uh, There's a guy named Gerald Post. He's a former CIA profiler and author of a number of books that profile Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, others, but he writes a lot on narcissism. He talks about the, the mirror-hungry narcissist, like every narcissist needs a mirror, but the ideal-hungry follower. And that's someone looking for mm. that, that uh, powerful figure that will give them a sense of, it's like you see this throughout the Old Testament, right? We need someone to bridge, to be the bridge between God and mm, us. Yeah. We need, and so it's usually that the powerful man, it's the pulpit, it's that sense of authority. It's, we need someone to tell us what we should do and shouldn't do. So it's, it's really a setup and it's a, a mentality that, that has to be exposed, I think, within systems and not just through a definition of a narcissistic pastor. Right. It's, it's that Stephen Furtick coloring page, right? We're united behind the visionary. We're following this person because they're the conduit between what God wants That's for right. us and who we're supposed to be. Um, I, I shared with you off mic a little bit, but the book actually eradicated some of my list of people who I was very convinced were, you know, narcissists. And it made me look at them through a more kind of gracious lens of who they actually were. But there, there was one of my former employers, like I, I left the book going every single thing in the book, like the, the vulnerability that you talk about, the, the just grandiose gestures, getting super, super vulnerable about certain topics and then not having any empathy and acting like a sociopath like that. I walked away going like, that is exactly how he was. Like, that's exactly what I came out of. And I mentioned a few things to you beforehand, but I remember I was making like 500 bucks a month and I'm about to get married and he's talking about hiring more people. And I'm just going, okay, hold up. Don't hire somebody else because you can barely pay me. And he literally would say stuff like, "Who's?" he said, who's the visionary? Who's the visionary leader? And who's the video guy? Or you know, what I'm not going to do is, is allow, take away the chance for you to trust in who God is. And mm-hmm. so it was always couched in this kind of biblical language, but it was really just this power. It was constant, just like, yeah. I'm the person who is like running everything. I'm the person that's yeah. carrying this on his shoulders. Yeah. yeah. And it's very dangerous. And, and, and this is why this abuse specifically is so harmful is that you're backing yourself with God and scripture, Yeah. but you're using yeah. very manipulative tactics. So you're hurting and, someone spiritually and mentally. That's right. It's interesting. It's biblical language. In other words, it's verses plucked from scripture or something like right. that. It doesn't look very much like Jesus. No. You know, when I think about power, I, I think about Jesus relinquishing power, um, mm. refusing to give in to temptation. I, I think uh, of Adam and Eve grasp that Jesus refused to grasp in Philippians chapter two in the Christ hymn. I think of a very different way of showing up in the world in Jesus. Yeah, it really does. Scripture is used to manipulate. It becomes a tool to oppress. Mm. And 
it's for me over the last number of years, it's been pretty discouraging to see this in so many different spaces. Like this isn't exclusive to one denomination or conservative or liberal, whatever. It's all over the place. But I continually come back to, though the the church reflects a kind of power that uh, abuses and exploits, Jesus refused to exploit power. And I, I long to see leaders live into that kind of vision of a surrendered kind of power, but you just don't see it. That's, and, and that's, I think, part of the problem right now. The man of God that you talk about doesn't look a whole lot like Jesus. It looks like someone who wields a sword sure. um, rather than one who lays down his life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, like there's a, a lot of times when this happens, like you mentioned in your book, like we, we look at these guys who again, can talk the talk like crazy. They're powerful, charismatic. They don't, I just interviewed Jimmy Hinton who who just wrote a a book recently. And he talks about how it's not the, it's not the weird guy in the corner. That's usually the, the concern in the church. It's usually the guy who has 20 people flocked around him right before service and is charismatic Mm -hmm. and funny. And yeah. And when something like this happens, it is, it's hard to imagine. It's like, how does, how does Zacharias, how does McDonald, mm-hmm. you know, how do all these mm-hmm. names we see that have these huge yeah. falls right. in, in, the, in your book, you talk about the idea of, we always say it's a double life. It was this double life. And you go to the idea that it's a more of a quadruple life. Can you break that down and talk about what you mean by that? Like how there's so many different shades of someone in a, a narcissistic kind of mindset. Are you talking about the nine faces of nar- the different faces of narcissism? Or are you talking more about the internal dynamics of, of the narcissist? So, so you had mentioned like there's public, private, blind, and um, undiscovered. Yeah. 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 This is just a way of a pedagogical way of just naming how, how blind we are to ourselves at times that there's a sense in which there are people who know us generally. And then there are like our family members that maybe know some things about us that are a bit more intimate. And then there are secrets that we know that no one else knows about that we keep to ourselves. And then there are things about ourselves that we don't know at all and we can't see. And I think the kind of leader that I long to see lead the church or any other kind of institution or organization is someone who operates at that fourth level with humility, right? Not just at that first level of of charisma and vulnerability, but really has a sense of there are things about myself I don't see. There there are things that I I need to do work on. I need to get into therapy to understand the things that are kept even from me that I don't see about myself. I need to be in honest relationships with people who I'm, I'm sharing myself with and there are too many pastors that operate from a place of just pub- public charisma without any, without being known by good friends or by a therapist. And that's dangerous. No. Do, do you think it's something where a, a pastor, because because this is like the thing that I'll hear pastors say is I don't, I need to be held accountable by other pastors, or I need to be held accountable by people who have done something. There was a pastor that tweeted about someone had done like a public rebuttal of something they had preached. And they said, why would I take criticism from someone who's never built anything? And on the surface, you're like, it makes sense. If I'm building a, building a business, I'm not going to take advice from someone who's been bankrupt, you know, three times. But on the other hand, just where's the balance between a pastor being every time a church member critiques him, he's, oh, that's probably right. Versus yeah. like, how do you not build an echo chamber around yourself of like three <laughs> pastor buddies yeah. who will tell you what you want to hear? Yeah. The pastor who, 
the pastor who has good friends, pastor who has a good therapist, spiritual director, will not be surprised by what he hears, what she hears from, from others. It, be like, oh yeah, of course. I, I think I can come off like that at times. I'll give you like a personal example. For about the last 15 years, I've been asking the question in, in my leadership capacities in various spaces. I've been asking the question, how, how do you experience me or how do I show up? Hmm. And I've given people the freedom to come to me and say, today was hard. I experienced you in a way that was off-putting or arrogant or whatever. Nowadays, when I hear that, and now I teach at a seminary and students will come and knock on my door hesitantly and say, Chuck, I, I was trying to get your attention today and you're in such a hurry and you talk so much about presence, mm-hmm. but I've experienced you as pretty hurried and rushed lately and I haven't experienced it. That's not a surprise to me because I think when you do this work over time, when you have people in your life reflecting back to you, how they experience you then you grow in your capacity to hold those things and own those things, confess to those things, and even talk about them in advance and other relationships. Most of the folks that I, I see on the narcissistic spectrum are so defended that they really can't let anyone in. Just getting mm-hmm. back to what I said earlier, it happens at a very early stage of life. And so there are these castle w- walls that are built up and any piece of feedback is you can't say that uh, about me. I'm the pastor, I'm the leader, Mm. uh, or you're missing something, or it's you, it's your, I worked with a pastor who would constantly turn it back on. He just has daddy issues. You know, he projects Mm. them onto me rather than coming to him and saying, I want to hear more about how you experience me as a bully or arrogant at times. Yeah. It's it's almost like many see it as it's a question of loyalty. Like you can't question me. Like I'm the leader, like I'm the pastor. Like you said, throwing rank, pulling rank in a church context is so funny to me because it's the Bible's very clear. There's no Jew, Gentile, no male, female. Like it is, Mm -hmm. it's very Mm -hmm. much a system in which there's us and God. There's not Mm -hmm. these, there's not all these multi-layers of, oh, you're not equal with me, especially in the Baptist world where priesthood of believers is one of the main things they herald mm-hmm. as like being okay. a, a defining doctrine. But I, I guess I'm curious, is loyalty ever important? Is it something where yeah. what context is loyalty important and what context yeah. is loyalty super dangerous? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a matter of whether or not you demand loyalty or invite loyalty. And, and so I do think that in some of these contexts, there is a loyalty demand. I think we saw that recently in politics at the highest level, and there's a penalty for disloyalty. Yeah. Um, and sometimes there's an invisible line that staff members or others will cross that they didn't know they crossed where they become disloyal and they experience the wrath of, of the senior leader. Whereas there, there are some who invite it by their presence and their posture because they don't demand it, but because they live from a place of humility and integrity, you want to follow them and you find yourself incredibly loyal. Like I, this is someone I'd want to work with for the next 20 years. And I'd be delighted to work for them. And oftentimes that comes with a a leader who has a more transparent disposition, not the kind of leader you mentioned a little bit earlier who made a large sum of money while he paid you all not so much, but a leader who is living at the same level as you are experiencing the same things. There isn't that sense of grandiosity entitlement Mm. that I mentioned earlier in the definition. It's just, we're all in this together. So of course you'd want to follow that person, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's that transparency there. And it's funny that you mentioned that because that's the leader that I had immediately after who took over because it imploded. Mm -hmm. He was, he told me I make this much and I'm making way less than I need to be making, but that's where we're at. 
And that was much easier to fall in line with because if I know that, because again, sacrifice is something like sacrifice can be used as a, as a a leverage word to say, well, you need to sacrifice and do more. But I saw a leader sacrificially giving, and then I was voluntarily sacrificially giving alongside of them. That's a lot different than someone who is not doing that. They're not living in accordance with that. And then they're expecting you to, at that point, it's not even, you're not sacrificially giving, like you're getting robbed (laughs) in a lot of ways. So I'm curious as we get near the end here, like I mentioned, there's been so many stories, so many people that could be named across denominations from, like I mentioned, Lentz, I mentioned McDonald, Zach Rice, like there's a, a long list with varying degrees of Mm-hmm. abuses that have happened. Yeah. And I'm curious, as you've seen these come out, I know the book is relatively new, but mm-hmm. is, do you find yourself going, man, there's so much more I could have added to it. There's other layers, or do you feel that yeah. it's all the same pattern repeating over and over again? I, I think when I think about your question, I, I find myself grateful for, you mentioned Scott McKnight, you know, Scott mm-hmm. and Laura wrote a book, Diane Langberg, Wade Mullen. There probably could have said more, Mine was not specific like Scott and Laura's book and right. intentionally. And so when you read mine, you're probably reading your own lens, independent, fundamental Baptist, Presbyterian, mm-hmm. Catholic, whatever your context is, you're reading that into it. They, they offered a, almost a case study in this, right? I think Diane Langberg's book on power and authority and leadership within the church is brilliant. I think Wade Mullen's work on abuse in organizations, toxic systems. Is brilliant. And so I find mine one small contribution among a bunch of other really good books that have come out within the last year or so that hit this from different angles. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I think too often for those of us who write books, there's some competition and comparison that goes on. But I think that there's, I think there's a recognition right now that we're in a season where this is a lot bigger than yeah. one book or one take or one podcast. And you're bringing on all these really incredible folks to have conversation. Kristen Dumay's book is a historical mm-hmm. expose. Yeah. She's not talking about narcissism per se, but it's a brilliant book. I think we need all of these contributions. So yeah, I'm pretty self-critical. So there are some things that I'd like to go back and say, yeah, I'd like a redo on that. Or I'd like to add, maybe add this piece, especially as you get feedback. The book's out now yeah. for, for almost a year. We're getting close. But I am so grateful. I'm grateful for voices like yours, the work that you're doing, because whether or not someone picks up my book, your voice is going to continue to be out there. And someone's going to listen to this and feel a little bit less crazy because Eric is offering a voice of wisdom and sanity and health into the world. And Hillary Clinton said it takes a village. Maybe that's what I'm getting at. It it really does take all of us. Yeah. I was speaking with somebody and I don't know if they'd want me to share their name, but we were having a conversation. They they asked me, why do you think it's, they were coming at from an an atheistic perspective and they were saying like, why do you think it it takes so long for someone to say something in some of these situations? And why do you think that Christians don't speak out about this? And I've said, I said, I can't, I, I ask that question every day. Like, why does mm-hmm. it take so, so much? But also I said in the last year and a half or two years, there have been ten, probably, probably like 10 plus books on my desk right now behind my computer from people like Diane Langberg and people yeah. like Scott McKnight and Laura yeah. Berenger and Kristen Dumay. Yeah. And I feel, I feel in a lot of ways that the conversation surrounding abuse and narcissism is very providential. I think that Scott McKnight, 
joke that people say, oh, it's prophetic. And he's, I'm not a prophet, (laughs) but I think in some ways that's true. I think that I don't think there's any way to explain the amount of writing and good writing. I'll specify good writing being done on this subject other than Providence. I think that this is personally, I think this is the closest to a reformation within the church that we've seen in Mm -hmm. since the last big reformation Mm -hmm. and uh, what happens in these next five, six years in the Southern Baptist convention, in independent Baptist world, in Catholic churches, like it's going to, it's going to say a lot about what the future of the, the church as it stands now is going to be in the coming lifetime. I really appreciate the the work that you've done. And I, I just am curious in this last few minutes, I, we've talked a lot about, is there hope for narcissists? Like, how does that work? How do we, where do we stop this? But there's also a lot of people listening, myself included, who've been really brutally hurt by people who have been narcissistic and abusive. What would you say to someone? And I'll put myself in this category who says that happened. And now I second guess every church I walk into. I've second guess every leader I'm under. What would you say to those who are are finding themselves with that betrayal trauma, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. Let me count count me among those who experienced this trauma Mm -hmm. too, being fired by uh, a pastor who I think was on the narcissistic spectrum and experiencing that trauma in a way that when this book came out, like the, the day that it came out that night, I couldn't sleep. And I had, I had this sense of terror that he was going to track me down and come after me for writing it. And I don't tell that story in there. I don't expose him or yeah, it's interesting. Right now, I'm I'm listening to on Audible Deb Dana's book. She's a, a great trauma theorist and therapist, befriending your nervous system, your autonomic nervous system. So what I'd say is the work goes on. For me, I'm 20 years into it, and I'm continuing to do the work with my own trauma. And I think this healing journey is one that you have to pursue with a, a great deal of intentionality. There are a lot of us who've been hurt who are drowning in our pain right now. And the the pain just gets replayed in story after story, go to another church and another denomination, another marriage without having done the inner work to free you up and to, yeah. So with that said, maybe I'm getting at your question in this, but do the work and do the work in therapy, get in a healthy community of, of women and men who know trauma and who won't shame you for your experience. I think safety is so important. And this is what we know from trauma theory is that people who found themselves like you and me in places that are terrifying and terrorizing feel chronically unsafe in their own bodies. And that's in one way, a definition of trauma. So you really have to consider what is safe for you. And it may mean stepping away from a church community for a season to do that work and healing, but be really intentional about it. Be in community with folks who uh, will be for you and for your healing journey rather than contributing to the shame and terrorizing you further. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a great answer to that question. And I think that's that gives a lot of real hope, I think, to people. And it is, it's important to recognize like for every person we could label and every person we could, we've been affected by, there are truly good people. Um, one quote that you mentioned in your book, I wanted to mention on here, was uh, Henry Nowen's quote, the long painful history of the church is a history of people ever and again, tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. Those who resisted this temptation of the end, thereby give us hope and thereby give us hope are the true saints. And just thinking about that. And I, I think again, 
this reformation that we're in talking about this many pretty much for the first time at least uh, in the time that i've seen is gives a lot of hope to me that we're going to start seeing some legitimate leaders step up to the plate and i think they are i mean i think we've i think there's a bright future ahead amidst all the the chaos that we're seeing right now but uh, thank you so much for yeah thank you so much for your work in this and and for your book and definitely anybody listening like I know you listen to a ton of podcasts and you're sitting there going, okay, I'll think about picking up the book later. Just order it now. uh, So you don't forget. And uh, it's well worth a read. If you read one book this year, this is worth picking up. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.